0: Thank you, Brother Dave. Good to see everybody. Thank you for being here uh, tonight on a Wednesday night. And what is spring break is going on for uh, a lot of our school districts and families are taking advantage of that. We're happy about that and uh, hope God keeps his hand on them while they're traveling. But I'm glad to see you, those of you that don't want to go on spring break. I'm glad you made that decision. To just stay home and enjoy things around the house. Uh, I recently discovered, and I think it's very interesting, that uh, there's a new product available to American consumers, and it's, it's used house paint. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can go and shop, and you can actually find used house paint in the shape of your house. So you just bring it home and put it on your house you know some of you sometimes I do this and you folks tickle me and other times you sadden me <laughs> because you're so stinking gullible with this stuff and I enjoy every minute of it I have people like really you can actually do that uh, I will challenge your thinking is how would you take used paint off of a house to try to sell it to someone else, or try to buy it back in the shape of your house again, you just have to think about these things. You know, it's kind of like the fellow that went to the factory where they make fire hydrants, and he couldn't find a place to park. So, <clears throat> <laughs> you can't park close to a fire hydrant. Want to make sure y'all are there's something going on here tonight. I don't know what it is, but woo! Uh, didn't mean to get that complicated and deep here all of a sudden on a Wednesday night. Uh, that's right. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand with me for a moment and um, go into now a very serious topic. Um, first of all, I'd like to ask all the ladies if you notice the new restroom remodel downstairs. Well I like that man. I should have brought that up Sunday morning we'd had people running the aisles um, well, now that we've got that one done, we had concluded that the men's restroom isn't that bad when we before we started the ladies, so we just do the ladies. Well now that the ladies done, we've concluded that the men's is kind of pitiful too. so hopefully in a few weeks uh we'll get the men caught up but sister Murph and uh, Brother Tom and others have done a great job, and we appreciate it so very, very much. Uh, we have some folks in, in Grace Church that are recovering from very serious surgery and and a, a, a few things like that. And I'd like for just to take a moment and lift them up in prayer tonight, if we could, that God would be with them and help them uh, through some very difficult times. Let's pray right now. Father, we love you. We're thankful for this honor and privilege to be call, to be calling on you uh, once again for needs and the lives of people who we love and are important uh, to your kingdom. And I pray, God, that you would minister to these folks, that you would keep them in the palm of your hand, <clears throat> that you would help them recover, to recover quickly, to get through these things. And uh, we trust you for that. We believe you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. So while you're standing, we'll read from the Word of God in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Let me read the verse. I'll have you be seated. and I'll, I'll, I'll do some introductory remarks. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One translation said, happier those who know they are spiritually poor. Thank you. You may be seated. When when Jesus made this statement, this is the beginning of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning, his introduction, if you will, to the Sermon on the Mount that goes on through Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8. And the backdrop, you have to understand the backdrop against this whole entire sermon but in particular the beatitudes in particular matthew chapter 5 verse 3 when jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven if you could understand that culture during that time and i'm not going to elaborate a long time on this because i have a lot of material i want to share with you tonight when i preached to you sunday this past sunday morning this past easter sunday morning jesus judas and easter and I outlined a lot of the mindset of Judas Iscariot. I gave a lot of background that we know, it's not much, that we know about Judas Iscariot. Uh, I've come to believe to, to a great degree that, that Judas was a byproduct of his culture. The Jews were brutalized virtually every day by the Romans. They were made fun of, they were persecuted, uh, they were forced and made to do things against their will. When Jesus said if a man come and ask you to walk with him one mile you walk with him Twain what that meant was a Roman soldier could pull a a Jewish man out of his job out of his business and say hey Jew man you come carry my armor for me some 70 to 100 pounds you carry it down there for me Well, Jesus said if someone does that to you you be a good Christian person and instead of going just the amount he asked tell him I'll be happy to carry this for you even further. I can't imagine how that statement must have incensed a lot of the Jewish people. I mean, you're you're, you're out of your mind if you think. I don't want to carry it one mile, much less two. And I believe Judas was a byproduct of that environment, of that culture, uh, where he wanted the, the... the nation of Israel, to be totally liberated from this Roman rule. And when Jesus, it became apparent that Jesus was not going to do that, then Judas sold him out. Uh, Judas totally misunderstood. I don't necessarily believe that he was an evil man. He was a wicked man. I think he was very passionate, and I believe he loved his country, and I believe he loved God in a, a very unique way. And totally, maybe didn't understand totally who Jesus was and what have you. Uh, Try not to be too judgmental with Judas, even though what he did was was heinous and horrible. Um, Moving forward to where we are today, whether we realize it or not or accept it or not, we have become, here in American culture, a lot of our attitudes, a lot of our mentality has to do with our culture. We are responding to circumstance and environment that exists, that's prevalent around us. Um, uh, The the total constant political scene that we're blitzed with every day, if you choose to listen to it, read it, watch it, whatever. Uh, we, We have this huge divided country. I don't think it's as bad as media portrays. They have to have something to report and want to give people a reason to watch it. Uh, on a national level, on a local level, um, I follow the news on my phone, and uh, they rep- the most they only report the most horrible thing they can find that's happened, and um, and it, it has to it, it after a while it works on your psyche. Well, you add to that problems, stresses, anxieties, and what have you on your job, plus all the pressure you have at home with your family and. And what not, an extended family, and however far you want to go with that, it becomes oftentimes complicated to try to determine what normal is uh, who who knows what normal is anymore. Uh, Sister Murphy and I had a conversation just yesterday um, that we we have a general understanding of a lot of our church folks here, of a lot of our church families, that every family dynamic seems to vary from one stressful thing to one thing you know that's that's anxious. And there's people that that have family members that struggle with all kinds of social issues, uh, emotional issues, um, physical issues you go right down the line and every family has dynamics and on top of that you have families that experience a lot of hurt they've been betrayed let down disappointed whatever by family um you you, you can go on and on and on with this and all of these things when the, you add them up all the stress and anxiety going on in our political system and all the stuff going on locally in our area and you don't feel safe and I don't go to that part of town. I don't go to that part of town. And you worry more, more people are carrying guns now than ever before uh, in our modern-day culture. And people are afraid, and they're stressed out. And you add family and you, all this, womp, 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 womp. You add it all up, and all of a sudden, you have this mountain of things that rolls around in your head all the time. And people wonder why their blood pressure's high, and their this is high, and that's out of shape, and that's out of whack, and all of these things. We live in a very stressful environment and culture, so did people in the Bible, especially the Jewish people in the New Testament. They didn't know when they was going to get a sword thrust through them for over anything trivial on any given day. They didn't know. So it's interesting to me. uh, Let me say this, and then we'll move on to our Bible study. Grace Church, bottom line, is made up of people, for the most part, who have very challenging dynamics, have had very challenging dynamics and, and and currently are working through very challenging dynamics in their own personal life to this day. And so we've created this, th- we have this church here that we've done our best to create an environment where you can find some source of peace and solace in the middle of such conflict and, and storm. And, and we I believe in the Word of God. I believe in the power of Jesus. Jesus can give anybody hope. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, what you're going through. Jesus can give you hope. Yes, He can. And so we teach that here. We believe that here. So knowing that dynamic, and, and after the, the service this past Sunday, I'm still feeling the effects of that burden that I expressed to you Sunday morning. I, I'm still under some of that, and I, I just, I was going to go in a different direction. I want to start a, a, a new series, but uh, for tonight, and I'll see how this goes tonight, but for now, I, I just want to share with you some things that uh, I hope is encouraging, that you can take home with you, that will bring comfort. Um, this is the kind of Bible material I like to teach against The backdrop of what i've just described every one of us has stuff going on in our lives everybody does you're frustrated over something you're anxious about something you're stressed over something you're sad over something you're depressed over something whatever it is i want to throw in and brother dave didn't know obviously what i was going to do tonight but his opening remarks were so spot on all i can do is give you the word of god it is a lamp to our feet and it is a light to our pathway Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I want to talk to you for a little while tonight about the path to being whole. The path to becoming whole. I want to open up tonight with a something I want to put on the screen that we all need to realize. If this wasn't lengthy, I'd have all of us read it together. But I think first and foremost, in our current society, with all the challenges we face, the number one thing we need to do is to realize that we're not God. I think we need to realize that I'm not God. And I think it's important, especially for our men here tonight, to admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. And my life is unmanageable. I can't control everything. As bad as we want to, we can't. It don't matter how much money you throw at something. It don't matter how much influence you throw at something. It doesn't matter. You can't control everything in your life. Is there anybody here without a show of hands tonight, but is there anybody here tonight that's realized that by now? I'm talking to an older congregation here tonight. Sorry about that, Matthew. You just got thrown into a category that you weren't prepared for. He told me today is, what, 25 so uh, but he's older, he's old enough to know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> the Bible clearly states that all have sinned. It is my nature to sin and it is also yours. It's our nature to sin. None of us is untainted when it comes to sin, and because of sin, we've all hurt ourselves. Because of sin, we've all hurt ourselves. We've all hurt other people, and then others have hurt us as well. So this means that each of us needs to engage repentance and begin a a semblance or a sort of recovery in order to live our lives the way God intended. When Israel returned from captivity in the Old Testament, Their first project was to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Notice this illustration tonight. It's relevant. Their first project was to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and that part of their story is found in the book of Ezra, and he records this rebuilding project, which took 20 years. 20 years to rebuild the temple. It took so long because, A, they had nothing to work with, B, is the, there were so many outside elements that were continually fighting against them. So it took 20 years to rebuild, and it symbolized the completion of the temple, symbolized their relationship with God. But 70 years, 70 years after the completion of the temple, the walls of Jerusalem still lay in ruins, And that's where the book of Nehemiah comes in. So they had a temple with no walls around it. They had a relationship with God with no parameter. They couldn't keep the value in, and they couldn't keep the junk out. Does everybody understand that? So here's people who have been able to reestablish repentance, the reconstruction of the temple, but unable to Re-establish recovery, the rebuilding of the walls. So as such, they were a type of those in the church who are saved but still broken. They have been wounded either by accident, by disobedience, by sin, by rebellion or through ignorance. Nonetheless, they're broken. They may well have been forgiven for the foolish seeds of sin that were sown before Christ. But the harvest of sowing to the flesh doesn't disappear overnight. There's still some rubble around that has to be worked through. So yes, salvation does solve the problem of our relationship with God. No, it does not dissolve all the problems in our lives. Life in Christ opens the doorway to the solution, but only by walking through that door and pursuing that way will those problems finally reach resolution. I suppose one of my maybe frustration, I guess, as as pastor is when you see people have in front of them a glorious opportunity to resolve some things going on in their life instead of Making that their focus, they make a bunch of trivial things their focus that won't help them. They waste opportunity. So you've undoubtedly heard the expression that time heals all wounds. I don't believe that's true. Time often makes things worse. Wounds that are left untended fester. And spread infection throughout the entire body. I've seen this, folks, all of my life. And I'm not talking about literal infection in a physical body. I'm talking about family dynamics, job dynamics, all these dynamics that I just mentioned a little while ago. Wounds that are left untended, fester, and spread infection throughout the entire body. And this is what I'm talking about tonight is the the, the family. It passes on to kids, and kids pass it on to their grandkids. I've seen this all of my life. That people do this. And time only extends the pain if the problem isn't dealt with. We need recovery. We need closure. We need to put a seal on things that's happened in our life and be done with it and quit picking at it. If you don't, you'll just repeat the cycle. I wish everybody could hear what I'm saying tonight. Understand it, believe it, and live it. Just start doing it. Isaiah said in Isaiah 50, 57 verse 18, I have seen his ways. God speaking here saying, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. This is what God does. He administers aid. He administers healing. He administers a balm. He helps. He comforts. He strengthens. He empowers He opens doors and what have you. This promise contains four parts of the recovery process that God wants to bring to pass in all of our lives, regardless of what dynamics we're facing here tonight. If you've been hurt, God wants to heal you. I'm talking about spiritual hurt, emotional hurt, mental hurt. It can even be physical hurt. I see people on your phone. I hope what you're doing is more important than what I'm saying. Because I'll be counseling with you later. One on one going through this same exact material. But if you've been hurt. God wants to heal you. If you're confused. God will lead you. If you feel you can't change. God will help you. If you feel no one understands. God wants to. Comfort you. This is what Isaiah is saying, uh, what God is saying in Isaiah fifty-seven, eighteen. This is what God does. The fact is that life is tough. We live an imperfect world. We're hurt by other people, and we hurt ourselves, and we hurt other people. This is for everybody. Everyone in this room needs recovery on some level, in your family, in your marriage, in your finances wherever you want to point the finger. But if you haven't lived a perfect life, if you've ever been hurt, if you've ever had a hang-up or a habit that you would like to get rid of, whatever it is, then God is offering you tonight hope. That's what he does. He don't pound you. He don't judge you, he don't ridicule you, he don't mock you, he don't laugh at you. He offers hope. So regardless of the problem you need recovery from, whether it's emotional, financial, relational, spiritual, or anything else, the Bible teaches the steps to recovery are always the same. A lot of us here tonight are familiar with the classic 12-step recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA. I understand one number I read was there's over 500,000 groups, 20 million people in North America alone that go every week to an Alcoholics Anonymous session. And I will agree that it's helped a lot of people. It has. But did you know that the Bible is the ultimate guide to the principles of recovery? When Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he began by stating eight ways recover. Eight ways to be happy. From the conventional viewpoint, <clears throat> most of these statements don't make sense. To the average reader, what I just read a little while ago to the average reader doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, they almost sound like contradictions, but when you fully understand what Jesus is saying, you realize that these eight principles are God's road to recovery, wholeness, spiritual growth, and Christian mature, maturity. Again, the principle that I open with is to first thing you need to do, and, and your effort to be better is to realize that I am not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong things, and that my life is unmanageable. The first step in my journey to wholeness is to realize. That I'm not God and admit that I'm powerless to totally control my tendency to do wrong things. I must admit that my life, with me in control of it, is simply unmanageable. Without a show of hands, does anybody feel that way about your own personal life? Do you feel that way about your marriage? Do you feel that way about parenting? Or are you perfect and you have everything together and you live in this utopia that you have failed to tell anyone about? Do you ever stay up late when you know you need to be sleeping? Do you ever eat more calories than your body needs? If I'm the only one honest here tonight, so be it. You don't have to answer any of these questions because most of you I know, especially on that second question about calories. I'm looking at two or three right now. The buttons up and down in front of you are screaming right now and hanging on for dear life. <laughs> do you ever feel you ought to exercise but don't? Do you ever know the right thing to do but you don't do it? Do you ever know something is wrong but you do it anyway? Have you ever known you should be unselfish, but you acted in a selfish way instead? Have you ever tried to control some person? Wives controlling their husbands. By your words, actions, or moods? Most everybody here tonight, if you want to try to control somebody that you really love and is close to you, you don't have to say a word. What you discover is it actually makes things worse, if you're honest. So does any of this sound vaguely familiar to you? If your answer is yes to any of those questions, then welcome to the human race. We all need help and hope in virtually every part of our life so how do you break out of that the first step is that you have to get past denial and I, I, I everybody in here probably hates that word i'm not in denial i know so you're playing god you know you know everything only god is omniscient so just that response right there just puts you in that bracket you fit like a hand in a glove buddy i know what's going on okay genius Why aren't you doing anything about it? Why do things in your life keep getting worse instead of better? Denial is what keeps us from moving into being whole. We excuse ourselves and accuse others. That's indicative of denial. Well, I'm justified in calling somebody an idiot. But, buddy, they call me an idiot all the time. Well, see... There's something wrong with that whole picture. All of this is a defense mechanism. Denial is a defense mechanism that allows us to live in denial. Have you ever seen the lost and found ad in the newspaper that says, Lost dog, three legs, blind in one eye, missing his right ear, his tail's broken, and he answers to the name of Lucky. I'm sorry. There's a lot of things wrong with this dog, and his name shouldn't be Lucky those of you that didn't catch that that's what I call denial so what's the antidote to denial what makes me finally face up to my problems and things what makes me look go look in the mirror everybody hear me tonight I'm trying to help somebody including myself but what is it that makes us finally walk to the mirror and say okay Glenn Murphy what's up what's going on in your life that you can't manage and you need God what is it what we fail to understand, particularly as experienced traditional long term lifelong Pentecostals, is oftentimes, and I've seen this again all of my life I, I I didn't realize it until just just in the past few years i you you, you start looking back and you, and you look at this family and that family, and I look at my own family. God's antidote oftentimes, listen to pastor, God's antidote oftentimes for denial is pain. Pain to bring the truth out in people. That's why armies have used it against their enemies and still do. You cause enough pain, you can get people to sing like a bird. Yes, you can. It gets the truth out of people. We rarely change when we see the light. But we do change when we start feeling the heat. People won't change when they hear, as Brother Dave opened with tonight, you won't, you'll hear this, but you're like, that's good. But it don't change anything. But when the rug's jerked out from under you, then all of a sudden I want to listen. I want to know more about what Pastor taught that night. So God uses three denial busters, if you will, to get your attention. Number one, he uses crises. He allows crises to happen in your family, in your own life, on your job, in your finances, wherever, whatever you're the most oftentimes vulnerable to. I had a conversation with somebody today, and we both agreed that the Bible is right when it said gold is tried by fire. Does anybody enjoy getting burned? I don't. But it burns out impurities. And and God runs all of us through a similar process. So there's people sitting from this side to this side tonight that's had more crises in your life than you're happy about. Could it be that God is trying to get your attention? Are you listening? Are you listening to the voice of the Lord? So crisis can be illness, it can be stress, the loss of a job, finances, Whatever. The second thing God uses is confrontation. That's when somebody cares enough to say, i.e., pastor, you're messing up, dude. You're blowing it. And I'm one of them weird pastors, I guess, that I say this sometimes to people. I preach it oftentimes. If there's enough people that I can't get to one-on-one, I'll just bring it from the pulpit. God has opened up a door of opportunity, and you need to walk through it. And people get up and walk out the door, and, and, and they don't do anything about it. There's an old saying in Texas, if one person calls you a horse's rear, ignore it. If two people, excuse my crudeness here right now, but I'm going to illustrate the point. If two people call you a horse's rear, you need to go look in the mirror. If three people call you a horse's rear, you need to go buy you a saddle. I don't mean to offend anybody by that. But if there's three people in your life that's important to you, call you a workaholic, go buy a saddle. If three people say you have a problem with anger, go buy you a saddle. If three people say you need to get some help, pain is like a fire alarm. You ignore it to your own peril. So God will oftentimes use people... To get in your face, we, we have altar workers here at Grace Church. We have people on the ministry team that they'll get right up in your ear and say things. And you walk away saying, how in the world did they know that? It's not to impress you with their spirit of discernment and their, their moment of, of, of having a word of knowledge. What they're trying to say is God is telling you right now that you're in a crisis and he's confronting you over it. And if you'll give God what he's asking for out of your life, a lot of this stuff will go away or he will at least help you to navigate through it. Am I saying all this clear enough or uh, I'm trying to be as simple and, and, and communicative as I can? The third thing God uses to get us out of our mindset of denial, and hopefully God won't have to let the bottom fall out of everything before we listen to him. But sometimes he uses catastrophe. I mean, where things just literally blow up. What sometimes happens is that seemingly God steps back and let us reap what we have sown, feeling the full impact of our own misguided decision. So you still want to play God? Paul said in Romans chapter 7, now he's the prolific apostle that we all know, love, and respect. And he wrote the majority of the New Testament. He said at his level of spirituality and at the depth and breadth of his relationship with God, he said... For that which I do, I allow not, for what I would, that I do not, and what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now then, is it more, no more, I that do it, but the sin that dwelleth in me. Now the Living Bible really simplified that, and Paul said, according to that translation, said, I don't understand myself at all. For I really want to do what is right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to do, what I hate. And I think that's where a lot of us live during certain portions and segments and venues of our life. He went on to say, I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong, but my bad conscience proves that I agree with these laws that I'm breaking. But I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing it. It is sin inside me that is stronger than I am that makes me do these things. So the first step on this path to being whole is to understand the cause of the problem. Is there something about our habits, about our attitude that needs to change? We have to understand the cause. We also need to understand the consequences of the problem. And finally, we need to understand the cure. Well, that's a little bit of a process, and it takes some honesty. It takes a whole lot of honesty, and it takes a whole lot of transparency. But, I mean, if you're the big idiot in your family and you're causing the problem, don't go buy a saddle. Go look in the mirror and start changing. Act different. Conduct yourself different. Have some sessions with God. Go talk to a counselor. There's a lot of good ones out there. There's things you can do, there's answers, there's solutions. You just don't have to wallow in this mindset that you've had for years and think this is the only way. It's not. The bottom line, Paul said, the cause of my problem is my sinful nature. The Bible has a word for this tendency towards self-defeating behavior, and it's called sin. My sinful nature gets me in all kinds of problems. I do things that are not good for me. And I don't do things that are good for me. Does anybody understand that? Is anybody here tonight perfect? If you are, you can go ahead and be dismissed. Right? I respond the wrong way when I'm hurt, and it just increases the hurt rather than lessening it. I try to fix problems, and often when I finish, they're worse than when I started. Proverbs said, the wise man said, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. So behind all of my problems is a sinful attitude. I want to be God. We all have this thing, especially American people, where we want to control our environment. We want to control our, our circumstances. We certainly want to control the outcome of everything that comes in and out of our lives. We want to control the outcome of it. And you can't. No matter how hard you try, you can't. You'll get some things right, but you will going to get everything right. And a lot of times, it's the important things that we don't get right. So behind all of my problems is this sinful attitude that I want to be God. I want to decide what's right and what's wrong. Our younger folks called millennials, I'll bring that bracket. They, they live this. I want to decide what's right and wrong. I ain't listening to mom and dad and parents. I'll start started to say something else. I'm not even going to go there. I want to call the shots. I want to make my own rules. We're, 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 we're working with that with, with a lot of church people, a lot of younger church people. I want to call the shots. I want to make my own rules. I want, to, I want to put myself at the center of the universe and be my own boss and live my own way. If it feels good, then I want to be able to do it. And I don't want anyone else telling me what to do with my life or how I should act. That's called playing God. What I'm really saying is that I want to be in control. And the more insecure you are, the more you're driven to control. You want to control yourself. You want to control other people. You want to control your environment. And you're driven to do this. That's called playing God. And it's, it's mankind's oldest problem. The, the control thing is it's a real issue. So how do we play God? Number one, we try to control our own image. We try to control our image. We want to control what other people think of us. We don't want them to know what we really are. I mentioned Sunday. This is suspected to be one of the issues with Judas Iscariot. That's one of his things with Jesus. Jesus could read through him. So we wear a mask and we deny our feelings, hoping to impress people around us. So why am I afraid to tell you who I am? because if i 'm honest, you won't like me, and the problem with all of us is me is all we 've got. you ain't got anybody else on you on the inside of you all you got you on the inside of you. Number two, we try to control other people parents try to control their kids all the way up through adulthood. you want to control them they're fifty eight years old or whatever, and they're still won't be- the parents won 't control them. Kids try to control their parents. <laughs> Casey, don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know it is true. <sighs> dad, we need to. Rah, 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 rah. I'm like, wait, who? who how, how did this change all of a sudden? And now you're the dad and I'm the daughter. And more specifically, who's the pastor and. In, in, I'm almost getting to the point where people say, I need to talk to the pastor. She's sitting right back there and right behind Kelton and go talk to her. She likes doing my job till it comes all this nitty gritty stuff and it ain't so much fun. But we try to control kids. Kids try to control parents. Wives try to control husbands. Husbands try to control wives. Friends try to control their friends. Are there any office politics where you work? We live in a world where Countries try to control other countries. We we use a lot of tools to attempt to manipulate each other. We use guilt. We use fear. We use praise. We use the silent treatment. We use anger. We use moods and all that. We do these things to control people around us. We're playing God. (laughs) And then we try to control our problems. (laughs) We're really quite good at this. We use phrases like, I can handle it. No, that's not really a problem at all. Yeah, I'm doing fine. I've had people tell me that, and I just look right back at them and say, don't tell me that. I, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. Oh, full going Well, you're not doing fine. I don't need anybody's help. I can quit any time. I'll work it out on my own. It's just trying to play God. And the more you try to fix the problem yourself, the worse it gets and and the fourth thing we do is we try to control our pain have you ever thought how much time you spend running from pain trying to avoid it deny it escape it reduce it postpone it and pain can be anything physical pain emotional pain hurt whatever people avoid it they deny it they try to escape it reduce it postpone it people do this with grief they it's like a bucket they kick down the road they don't want to go through it and it's horrible to go through it. What people don't realize with grief is you're going to go through it at some point in your life. The sooner you do, the better off you are. And you can start healing and recovering. I know that's easier said than done. But we try to pros- postpone our pain by eating or not eating. Some people try to do it by getting drunk or smoking cigarettes or doing drugs or getting in and out of relationships or Whatever. Or you develop some kind of compulsive habit to try to control your pain. Or you become abusive and angry and critical or judgmental or depressed to hide your pain. There are many ways we try to control our pain. So what are the consequences? This is what we do when we're trying to play God. That's the the symptoms of it. So what are the consequences of it? Number one is fear. Now I've got to hurry. I'm running out of time. So what are the consequences of playing God? Number one is fear. When I try to control everything, I get afraid. I'm afraid that somebody's going to find out who I really am. They're going to understand that I'm a fake, that I really don't have it all together, that I'm not perfect. Church people live this every day. So I don't want to let anybody get real close to me because they'll find out that I'm really afraid on the inside. So we fake it and fill our lives with fear, afraid that somebody's going to reject us or not like us because they don't really know what we're like we think they only have an image of me if they really knew what I was like they wouldn't like me or love me this is indicative of Adam in the garden of Eden he told God I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid I was naked and I hid myself he did not want God to see him as he really was the second thing that happens beyond fear is frustration have you ever been in the Carnival game played with the mallet where these things pop up, you know, randomly and you have to hit it down, hit it, hit it down, hit it down. We live life that way. We keep slamming one thing down, another one pops up, and we get this kid straight and the other one gets goes haywire and get this money situated and that money goes, and it's just constant. You understand the point. You slam one thing down, another pops up. That's life. We whack down one compulsion and another one pops up. We whack down one problem and another one pops up. We whack down one conflict and another one pops up. It's so frustrating because you can't get them all knocked down at the same time. And the frustration you feel is the symptom of a deeper problem that you've not dealt with. You're not God. And you're not, you, when you try to control things, it doesn't work. Paul said, then I find then a law. That when I would do good, evil is still present with me. The third thing that happens when we try to play God is we fatigue. This runs rampant in our society. People are tired. They're burnt out and what have you. It's trying to play God. Denial takes an incredible amount of energy. We try to hide our pain by keeping busy. I know folks that just keep their lives in turmoil and busyness all the time. It's because that's the way they deal with their deep hurt on the inside of them. Uh, We try to hide our pain by keeping busy because we don't like the way we feel when we slow down. So we run from pain by constantly being on the go with work, hobbies, sports, even church. So ask yourself, what is it that you're really running from? The psalmist said in the Living Bible Translation, All day and all night your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally admitted all my sins to you and, you and stopped trying to hide them. The fourth thing that happens to us, and I'm hurrying, I'm going through this quickly, is failure. When you try to play God, that's one job description you're guaranteed to fail at. Nobody can do it successfully. You need to be honest and open about your weaknesses, your faults and failures. In fact, our church needs to be a safe place where real people can talk about real problems, real hurts, real hang-ups, real habits, and not be blown away by our old traditional judgmental attitude. And we are working hard for that environment. We are a family of fellow strugglers. There's not a person in this room that has it all together. We're all weak in different areas, and we all need each other. The wise man said, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. So basically, there's two things every human being needs to learn. There is a God, and you're not Him. Because I'm not God trying to control myself, other people in situations completely wears me out. God did not create me to be the general manager of the universe. That position is already filled. The psalmist said, I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Throughout life, we all learn various coping systems that seem to work for a time, and we need to get attention or block out pain. But as the years progress, these same ideas confuse and cloud our view of the truth, our perception of ourselves, and our expectations of those around us the longer we hold on to them the more unrealistic and distorted they become eventually growing into denial jeremiah said they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly saying peace peace when there is no peace peter said in his epistle why they promised them liberty while they promised them liberty they themselves are the servants of corruption for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought in bondage unfortunately the human it is human nature that we never change until our pain becomes greater than the fear of change we never change until the pain becomes greater than our fear of it we don't change when we see the light we change when we feel the heat when things start falling apart so god whispers to us in our pleasure but he shouts to us in our pain pain is god's megaphone it's a warning it's a warning light on the dashboard of life. It, it, it let it motivate you to get help and to face the issues. Uh, I'm about done. I've got landing gear out right now. So what is the cure for my problem? I have four minutes. The very first step to on this path to being whole is to realize that I'm not God and I'm powerless to control myself, let alone anyone else. I have to admit that I have a problem before I can get help. I'm not here trying to put a guilt trip on everybody. I'm trying to be real, that we need God. We need God in our life. Everybody say amen. We need God in our life. Um, Let me hurry on here. The Bible teaches that in admitting my weakness, I will find strength. The Bible teaches that. This is exactly the opposite of what our culture teaches us. Admitting I'm not God means I recognize three important facts in my life. Maturity comes when you recognize these three facts. Number one, I admit that I'm powerless to change my past. I admit that I'm powerless to control other people. And I admit that I am powerless to cope with my harmful behaviors. Good intentions and willpower are not enough. And I need a source of power beyond myself. I need God. I need God because he made me to need him. So what is grace? Grace is the power to change. And God gives you time and space and latitude to do it. Grace is the power God gives me to make the changes in my life that I want to make. And more importantly, he wants me to make. So there's only one way to get grace. God only gives it to the humble. So what needs changing in our lives? What hurt or hang up or habit have we been trying to ignore? It's hard for most of us to admit that we have any problems in our lives because it's humbling. It's, it's kind of embarrassing. It's saying, I don't have it all together as much as I'd like for everybody to think I do. So when you tell that to somebody, they're not going to be surprised because they know it. God knows it, and you know it. Just need to be honest and admit it and let God go to work on your behalf and let him work on your behalf. I hope I've helped somebody here tonight with this material. There is a pathway to being whole, to feeling contentment, to feeling peace in your life, even when things may be turbulent around you. Um, I think the most brilliant thing Sister Murphy and I did when our kids was born, to the best of our ability, we put them in God's hands immediately. The first thing that I said to both of my children, both of them, the first thing that came out of my mouth, I held them and put their ear up to my mouth, and I said, Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized. First thing I said, I'm not trying to be a hero and sound like I've got my act together and everything's perfect in my life either. But we truly gave our kids back to the Lord. And we fulfilled our parental responsibilities as best we could. And other than that, it's between them and God now. God can do a whole lot better job than I can. I like to think of that with this church. It's I was talking to a pastor the other day, several weeks ago, and he talked about my church this and my church that. I finally wanted to ask him, I said, well, when were you crucified for your church? Did you resurrect on the third day? It ain't my church. And I love it when there's a lot of problems in the church, and I'm able to go to God and say, God, there's a lot of problems in your church. It ain't mine. (laughs) But let's surrender our lives to the Lord and let him take the throne in our heart. And let him help us make the right choices. And follow the voice of God. Listen to it. Obey it. Do it. Don't be a hearer, but be a doer of the word. Okay, Brother Wheeler made a big to-do Sunday about ice cream floats. Is Anybody ready for one? One person. Well, all right. Who was that, Brandy? Who was that? My mother-in-law. Should have known, oh, I should have known the answer to that question. So you can be dismissed, Sister Nixon, and go on over there, and the rest of you folks can do whatever you want to do. God bless you, I love you, and uh, we'll see you Sunday morning. Y'all go next door and get an ice cream float and have some good fellowship.